You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. And anyone who would come with him and to follow God on a journey to a different land, a different place that he was going to show Abraham. And it was obvious from the very first word spoken that Abraham was going to have to completely trust God at every step and at every turn, uh, otherwise this thing wasn't going to work. God demanded trust from Abraham, and he promised to Abraham at that time, not only was he going to lead him to a different land, but that he was also going to give him a son, and through that son, there was going to be a multitude of people born to Abraham. He would be their father And the generations and the descendants that would come from him would be innumerable. Uh, God showed him the stars and said, count them if you can. Your descendants will be like the stars. God made sober promises, oaths, covenants with Abraham based on this promise that he would give him a son, Isaac, and that through Isaac, many offspring, innumerable would come, and that in fact, Through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So Abraham continued on his journey, believing these promises that God had made, trusting in him, sometimes, of course, as a human being, stumbling, faltering as he followed God. But nonetheless, it was in his heart to believe God and to follow him. He believed that he would see the Son And one day he did. Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Abraham was about 100 years old. Sarah was about 90 when Isaac was born. So there was a a miracle there in and of itself. And then now we see in chapter 22, we come to a place uh, years down the road. Isaac now is 13, 14 years old. He's, He's a teenager. He's growing up. He and his father are very close. Uh, There was one other son born to Abraham that was not according to the promise, but was through a slave girl that Sarah, his wife, had given him to try to shortcut the waiting on God. And that son, Ishmael, had been sent away with uh, his mother, and God blessed him also and made him a nation, only he wasn't going to be a nation of promise but he was going to have always trouble with the nations around him. Now, as Abraham and Isaac and Sarah are living there in this land of Canaan and still trusting in the promises of God, we see chapter 22 unfold. So I'm going to read this with you, the entire chapter, and then we'll stop and pray for some help. Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, And his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely Multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ramah, bore Teba, Gema. Tehash and Mecca. Let's pray. God, you always provide. We believe your word. We turn to you in faith this morning, Lord, that you'll teach us, that you will teach us. Thank you for your word. Would you cause it to sink deeply into our hearts, to transform us? We know, Lord, according to your word, that this is a work of your Holy Spirit inside of us. So we ask and believe that you will say yes, that you would give your Holy Spirit to us with unique and surprising and transforming power this morning 
to cause us to believe and obey and trust your word. Please exalt Jesus. Please preach the gospel to our hearts. Please make us understand and follow you with more passion, more purity than ever before. We ask you for this and nothing less than this. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I could just take a moment to remind you, I know we've already had a moment of reminder, but if I could, um, not looking to the past, but looking, uh, not, not Genesis 1 through 21 here, but looking ahead, if I could remind you of what we have come to know from this point forward about the importance that this moment holds to the history of our salvation. As we look back on this moment, whether or not Isaac lives is not just some minor detail in the history of salvation. Things are riding on this. Things are dependent on this, on Isaac being born and living and having children of his own who have children of their own who have children of their own. This is vitally important to you personally as you believe in God. This helps us understand not only the seriousness that we can understand looking back on the history of our salvation, but it helps us to understand the mind of Abraham and the agony and the anxiety that he must have faced, the dilemma that he faced when he heard this command, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Let me remind you that Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob later on in life was renamed by God Israel. And that's where we get the name Israel for the Israelites. Jacob had 12 sons and those 12 sons became the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, Joseph, was sold into slavery in Egypt out of jealousy by his older brothers. And being sold into slavery there in Egypt, God blessed him and was with him and had his hand upon him and prospered him greatly so that Joseph became the most powerful man in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. His influence was so great that he was able even, through God, to rescue all the land of Egypt and their neighbors from a great famine that had come upon them. When this famine struck, Israel, Jacob, and his other sons came to Egypt looking for food, and there they actually found Joseph, whom they thought was dead. And they were reunited there and lived in Egypt, and Israel became settlers in Egypt. There in Egypt, you can imagine, with the hand of God on them to prosper them, Israel became a great nation within a nation, even a million of them living there and prospering in Egypt. But after some time, another Pharaoh came and was not so fond of the Israelites, and he enslaved them and made a nation of slaves within the nation of Egypt. 
Then we see that God raised up Moses, and through Moses and the speaking of Aaron on Moses' behalf, God led Israel out of captivity from Egypt into a promised land with Joshua. Joshua defeated a lot of enemies and established Israel's presence in the promised land through the power of God. Then settling in this promised land, we see judges raised up. We see kings raised up. We see prophets raised up. We see promises made to the Israelites. Promises to inhabit the land. Promises that God will be gracious to them. Promises that God will discipline them when they disobey. Then we see Israel in captivity again as the Babylonian kingdom takes possession of Jerusalem, destroys it, destroys the temple, and takes them away as slaves to foreign places. But more prophets are raised up and more promises are made, even promises of a Savior, a Savior who would be born, a Savior who would live and die for His people to deliver them from captivity. And then... After hundreds of years more of waiting, we see born in the city of David a baby of the tribe of Benjamin, the younger brother of Joseph, born to a virgin in the promised land, Jesus. So to think that it is an insignificant detail or a minor detail that Isaac would live and see more days, and have offspring of his own who would have offspring of their own, would be to completely forget the history of our salvation. The line from which Jesus came, the promises that were made, this is vitally important to us. So now with these promises, maybe not all the history that we know about where Jesus came from, But knowing these promises and treasuring them in his heart, can you imagine what was in Abraham's mind when he heard this command? Can you imagine the agony that he would face as he saddled the donkey, as he chopped the wood, as he gathered his son and his two servants with him and said, let's go to a place where God will show us. You can tell from the context here that Abraham held this command as a secret in his heart. He didn't say, hey, Isaac, hop on the donkey, boy. I'm going to kill you on the top of the mountain. He just said, come with me. We're going to go worship. I have children, and many of you have children. And I want to ask you, if you will, I know this is hard oftentimes, very hard to come here and to let your guard down and to feel, to feel the way we know God would inspire us to feel, to identify with our brothers and sisters in these texts as they wrestle with the promises and the commands of God. But I'm going to ask you this morning if you would Let that shield down, and if you would with me, feel and embrace the agony, the agony, as God finished speaking words to Abraham in his heart. 
immediately, as God spoke, would have been filled with elation. God is speaking to me again. What kind of wonders will I hear? But then as the words continued to roll from the mouth of God, his heart sinking and sinking because he knew I only have one option. It is obedience. The voice of God has spoken to me and I must, as always, obey God. But God has also made promises to me. And if I obey the voice of God, will I not be abandoning the promises of God? That through Isaac, a multitude of offspring will bless the whole earth. How then can I slaughter him on a hill? But I must. I must. Do you feel the contradiction? Do you feel the agony? Your very own child Can I remind you that a human sacrifice was not something altogether unfamiliar to Abraham, but it was something familiar in a life he had left behind. In a pagan religion that he saw now eyes wide open, a merciful and a gracious God who's called him away from human sacrifice. Away from these vain attempts at appeasing false gods through bloodshed, through murder even of children. It's hard to calculate exactly the grief he must have been feeling. The Scripture gives us no indication. doesn't help us understand, but just says the words and trusts that we as human beings will feel his pain. The brevity of it is alarming, isn't it? So Abraham arose early the next morning and saddled his donkey. It's almost stark, alarming. He just arose early in the morning. I imagine that I would be savoring every moment that morning with my son and and procrastinating and waiting, and maybe God will speak to me again and spur me on to obedience. I know I have to, but maybe if I drag my feet, I'll get some more moments with my son before I kill him. The contradiction, the agony... The pain, the obedience. As much as there's so much strife inherent in the text, let's not miss that Abraham obeyed the voice of the Lord. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Look at verse 4 and and look at the first four, four words with me. On the third day. On the third day. A three day journey. Isaac, dead man walking. Abraham storing these things in his heart. Agonizing obedience. A journey up to the place where God would show him. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, notice the ambiguity, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, both of them together. You can imagine Isaac already here is beginning to have some questions, don't you, don't you think? But don't miss here in the midst of this that Isaac is trusting his father and going with him. He's even carrying the wood. Now, if I can, cast your minds forward a couple thousand years to a father who took his son up a hill and laid wood on his shoulders to become a sacrifice. If I could just throw your minds forward. Isaac is very much like Jesus here. Abraham is very much like the father, willing to give his son a son willing to go and trust his father. But here comes the question. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, in the Hebrew here there's a tone of affection. And he said, Here I am, my son. More affection. The writer wants you to know that they have an intimate bond. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I don't imagine that it was the first time he had the thought, but just the first time he was willing to say it out loud. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then notice again, so they went, both of them, together. Twice it's told to us that they were together in their journey with their intimacy, their bond, and their trust. The relationship of trust and partnership in this sacrifice just undoubtedly foreshadows Jesus and the Father at the cross. It's meant to. If it's where it throws your mind and casts your thoughts, it's because it was meant to. God did these things on purpose for us. God was willing to give up His Son, His only Son, Jesus, whom He loved for our sake. And here He is testing. You see how the passage starts in the very first Verse, after these things that had happened, God tested Abraham. Now, can you imagine reading this text if you didn't know it was a test? If you imagined here, as Abraham might have imagined, that God was actually going to have him sacrifice his son. But God lets us know it's a test of his faith. And what he's testing here is how much in tune is Abraham with the heart of God? Because as we know, as Christians, Christ followers, people who trust in the sacrifice, in the cross of Christ, we see clearly the heart and the character of our God. But did Abraham see this deeply into the heart and character of God our Father? God is testing that. How much do you know me? How much like me do you want to be? How much are you willing to sacrifice 
in obedience. Now God at the cross actually did accomplish something. He actually did. He also gave an example. An example as Abraham gave of a willingness to sacrifice something that is his greatest treasure for the sake of God's plan, God's will. Abraham only gave an example, but God saw it through to accomplish something great. God did not allow Abraham and Isaac to complete the sacrifice, but they still joined God in giving this example. The example is to trust completely in the promise of God while walking in unswerving obedience to His Word. This is the example. Let me re-say it again. The example given by Abraham which models God is to trust completely in the promise of God while walking in unswerving obedience to His Word. This is where the contradiction comes in the text between God's promises and God's Word, His command. God told Abraham to do something that it didn't seem possible to do, still realizing the promise. They seem to be in contradiction to one another. So how do we reconcile these two examples when they seem to compete? That if Abraham is to obey the command, then he'll abandon the promise. Or if he pursues the promise, he can't possibly obey the command. How do we reconcile these two things which in natural sense do absolutely compete with each other? God had said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then he said, take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. What an impossible position that Abraham finds himself in. You notice in the midst of the impossible position, let me point it out to you, he obeyed God. In the midst of an impossible situation, he obeyed God. So let me just stop here for a moment and say, if you ever find yourself believing that if you obey God, you will not be able to experience the promises, the love, the grace, the salvation of God, you're finding yourself in what seems to be an impossible situation. Let me say to you firmly and sternly in that moment, resolve to obey God. Trust obedience to God is of more value and more certainty than your own perspective about what God can do through your obedience. Obey God always, and you will not be mistaken. So on the one hand here, he's been given a promise that hinges on Isaac living and having children of his own. And on the other hand, God is commanding him in these uncertain terms to kill Isaac. It is not metaphorical. It's, it's not uh, somehow allegorical. Go up and pretend to do this thing. Put on this drama and I'll teach you through it. There's no didactic lesson here he's trying to teach Abraham. He just says, kill him. So what example does Abraham give in this impossible situation through his obedience? In order to illustrate that for you, uh, I'm not going to try to do it on my own. I'm going to let the Bible teach you how Abraham navigated this. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. 
New Testament. You're going to get past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You're going to get past Acts, Romans, the Corinthians, the letters, Philippians, all these things. You're going to get to 1st, 2nd Timothy. Then you're going to find Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to ask you to look at verses 17 through 19. Calling our attention back to Abraham in this, uh, in this teaching about faith, about trusting God. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So verse 18 there is is reminding and agreeing with us that we have discerned correctly a seeming contradiction. How is it that you can offer up Isaac as a sacrifice when the promise says it will come through Isaac? Verse 19. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham here, if you're wondering, how is it that in the midst of this contradiction, Abraham could find some kind of obedience to God while still believing in the promise of God, even though they seem to clash, how is it possible? It's that Abraham believed his obedience to God would result in the promises of God being fulfilled, even if it required resurrection from the dead. Even if it meant that he would kill his own son, burn him on the altar to ashes, my friends, to ashes, and that God could still bring those ashes together and resurrect Isaac from the dead to walk in the promise of God and see the nations blessed by the promise of God fulfilled. Abraham, in his obedience, believed that God would do whatever was necessary for God to do by his own hand to fulfill his own promises. And Abraham, through believing that it must be that God will raise him from the dead, must have believed it was not dependent on him to understand. You catch that? Abraham was going to do something in obedience to God that he did not understand. And an impossible scenario arose in his mind that he trusted God with. Recognize with me also that at this point in the Scriptures, we don't have a lot of resurrection stories. So this morning, in 2017, with our Bibles and our laps, Old and New Testament, when we begin to speak about resurrection and people being raised from the dead, we can think of multiple examples. Abraham had no example. Abraham had no precedent for believing that God would raise dead people back to life. But it must have been required. It must be that this is what God will do. Because here's here's where we feel the tension and the contradiction that Abraham found in his heart the ability to bypass and just obey God, that there actually was no contradiction. There is no contradiction between what God promises and what God requires. 
because God is not a God of chaos and disorder. He's a God of truth. What God says will happen, will happen. I know it's a very simple and a very plain thing to say, but how much of our lives are lived wondering if the things God said would happen would actually happen? How much of our lives, how many decisions do we make believing that we can't do the right thing because somehow it will go badly for us? How many times have you heard people within the church, in-house debate, talking about Jesus' commands about being struck on the other cheek, about giving more than what's been robbed from you, about when someone asks something from you, you give it without reservation. Oh, but surely God wasn't, doesn't want us to be a doormat. He doesn't want us to be taken advantage of. You realize that's an American ideal, not a Christian ideal. The idea that, that God could not allow you to be taken advantage of, that's not a biblical principle. God is constantly taken advantage of. God Almighty in heaven who does all that He pleases, who is who owes nothing to anyone, is constantly pouring out grace on the just and on the unjust. Every second of every day, allowing himself to be taken advantage of grossly and ignorantly all the time. And yet when Jesus says, be taken advantage of for my sake, we go, you you can't possibly mean that. There are things that God calls us to that in our own minds and perspectives seem impossible. Seem that that will never get me down the road to experiencing the things that God has promised to me. But according to Abraham's faithful and true example, we must lay aside our perspective and trust that obedience to God will always result in God's glory and our good, even if it necessitates resurrection from the dead. Which, by the way, most of the things that we believe we're sacrificing to see God do something requires a lot less than resurrection from the dead. And normally requires us to be inconvenienced or temporarily uncomfortable. How can it be, God? How can it be that you would cause me to wander in some desert of inconvenience for weeks? Weeks on end. Abraham was willing to slaughter his son on an altar. This is the example. This is the example. To trust God and to obey him. Abraham could not believe that God's promise and God's command would disagree with each other. He could not believe that. He understood the holy and infallible nature of God. He is perfect and he cannot be wrong. God cannot be wrong. He cannot be untrue. Therefore, it must be that God will raise Isaac from the dead. Now, does that negate or does it subtract the pain of slaughtering your own son? No. 
even, listen to me, please put yourself in his shoes, even with Hebrews 11 informing our perspective and filling in what we didn't know about the heart of Abraham and what he was looking to, resurrection, please put yourself in this position. The voice of God says, take your child, slit his throat, drain the blood from his body, and then burn him on a pile of wood to ashes as you worship me. I'll raise him from the dead. I'll raise him from the dead. Now get started. Is it any less agonizing and painful? Is, it in, does, is there any less uncertainty in your human heart, in your soul, in your flesh, failing and weak and temporal as it is? Oh God, you did mention resurrection, didn't you? I heard that correctly, didn't I? You will not abandon me here in this moment, will you? You won't leave me hung out to dry. As soon as the knife slides across his throat, you won't say, Oh wait, did I say, will you? Please be true. Please be true. The agony, the pain, the sacrifice, the belief, the obedience, they're all running parallel. Parallel to each other. Not crashing and contradicting. Painful, agonizing, faithful obedience, believing in the promise of God. I, I stress this point because I understand as, as a fellow human being, I faced many times when it was so painfully difficult for me to make up my mind that I was going to do the right thing. The thing that I knew in my heart God had commanded, that I knew I was responsible for, to make up my mind and to follow through in obedience because I knew I was signing up for a lot of pain through my obedience. But here in the Scriptures we have an example. Obey God first and foremost because of your belief in God's good and holy, perfect nature. He cannot be wrong. He will not abandon you. He will see you through. Now, because this was only meant to be a test and an example and nothing physical as ter in terms of sacrifice the way God did through Christ was meant to be accomplished here, it was only meant to foreshadow God in His grace calls out to Abraham. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. Again, Isaac is very much representing Christ here, his willingness to be bound. Keep in mind, he's like early teen years, and Abraham is like a hundred and teens. Who do you think is faster, more agile? Who do you think has more endurance and more strength than their mother? Isaac clearly has the physical advantage here. He could have gotten away. But his trust in his father was undying. He was willing to be bound and laid on an altar. Jesus, Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. When Abraham told the two men and told Isaac, the Lord is going to provide for himself, I don't think he realized he was speaking prophetically, but he was. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Do you hear that? Do you think there's ever been a more joyful and eager sacrifice of a ram in all of human history? He slit that throat. He started that fire. Can you imagine the worship in his heart watching that ram burn on the altar that he had built instead of his son, his only son whom he loved? Imagine the relief, the relief. Keep in mind again that this is foreshadowing God's heart, Christ's fulfillment. God did see it through. God experienced no relief. Christ did hang on a cross. Christ did drown in the fluid of his own body under the weight hanging on those nails, suffocating as he breathed out his last, crying out to God. He did do it. He did accomplish it. He did see it through. There was no moment even though Jesus clearly, scripturally, could have called upon legions of angels to bring him down from the cross and lay to waste his enemies, he, like a lamb led to the slaughter, didn't make a sound. <clears throat> but for your sake and for my sake, hung there until it was done. angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. I imagine now that the ram is burnt to a crisp, its ashes falling through the grate. The angel said on behalf of the Lord, by myself, this is the Lord speaking, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Not by any other thing, but by himself. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Surely, surely, God reiterates His promise, but now, now He's not making just promises, He's making an oath by Himself. And now, if you were in Hebrews 11, I'm going to ask you to turn back to Hebrews 6. And again, I want the Scriptures to make very clear why it's so important that God made an oath by Himself. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. 
For when God had made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. They swear by something greater than themselves so that you'll understand the soberness and the seriousness of the oath that they're making. I swear by this thing that is beyond me. I swear by this thing that is greater than me. This thing that can't be touched or manipulated by me. What was there that God could look to, that God could point to, that God could make an oath by? There was nothing greater. So by His own self, He makes an oath. So when God desired to show more convincingly, more convincingly than speaking to a person by his own voice, more convincingly than over and over and over again at all these different points, making promises and fulfilling them to Abraham. But somehow in the heart of God and his graciousness, he wanted to be even more convincing. Who was he trying to convince? Pay careful attention to the text here. You'll find yourself in it. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, to the heirs of the promise, surely to Abraham, to Sarah, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, as he sat rotting in an Egyptian slave cell. Can you imagine Joseph thinking back to the promises that God had fulfilled? I know that I'm an heir of these promises. For you, an heir of these promises, God wanted to make this very certain. What was it that he wanted to make so certain? To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, that is, the oath, the promise of God, the oath, and the character of his purpose. Two unchangeable things by which God made an oath. He guaranteed it with an oath in which it is impossible for God to lie. So that, listen, the heirs of the promise, verse 18, the second part, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God made an oath by himself to make it very certain and very clear that his promise and his character are unchanging so that even if he calls us and commands us, to do things that seem impossible to accomplish. That even if it means we lay our own lives down, how can I lay my life down and see the promise of God fulfilled? Because the promise of God goes beyond this life. There's something much greater in store for the heirs of the promise than just a life on earth of seeing even the most miraculous things fulfilled. Do you know that to be an eyewitness of all the miracles of Jesus, to be someone who stood by and watched him teach and watched him turn water into wine and watch him turn 
stumps into hands, to watch him raise Lazarus from the dead, to watch him walk on water, to watch him transfigured and glorified before Peter, James, and John talking with Elijah and Moses, you realize there's some greater inheritance in store for you than even for those experiences. You will be face to face with Christ in all of his glory and majesty. Why? Why do you know this? Why is this hope secure? Why can you have such strong encouragement? Because God has sworn by his own self to see it through to completion. By his own self. There's nothing greater, nothing stronger, nor more trans- transcendent that he could appeal to. God has sworn to you by himself that he will do this. Now, I know that there are several different things here that, uh, that we're supposed to learn. But if I can, for the purposes of this morning and what's in my heart for you and for myself to learn from God, let me say this. First, when you're not sure how obedience to God is going to glorify God and see you through, do it anyway. Obey God always. Always. The second thing, the promises of God are undoubtedly secure. No one can take any of those promises from you. No one can rob you of the inheritance that you have in Christ. No one can cheat you out of it, trick you out of it. And no amount of obedience or disobedience can lead you astray off of the path if indeed you are in Christ by grace through faith in Him. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on God. How can we be so sure? Because He promised by Himself that He would do it. The third thing, the third thing is this, it's not unrelated, in fact it may be to be, I can say with you from personal experience that it is very difficult to walk in obedience to God and believe the promises of God. Jesus said it himself. It's a narrow path. It's a difficult path. It's much easier to trust yourself, your own perspective, your own experiences, to make your own way much, much easier. Easier to see because you can plan your own steps. But in the end, your own way will end in destruction. And obedience to God, the narrow path, following Christ, will result in deliverance. But knowing for sure that following Christ and believing the promises of God will end in deliverance, in freedom, in joy, doesn't change the fact That our flesh is weak. That our minds are limited. 
And every single day, every day, for every one of us, there will be moments when we have to make a very clear, conscious decision whether or not we're going to lay our lives and our treasures down for the sake of obedience to God or we're going to try to find some way of still getting around to it but in a less painful way. And you know what I think most of the time that looks like for us? If I'm just being brutally honest with us, including me, what it looks like most of the time is not that one of us, any one of us, looks at Abraham as example and sees how God has fulfilled this example and even led us to a place where we can understand the example through the power of the Spirit in us because of our faith in Christ and realizing the insanity, we still sit in this place, not one of us going, I choose to be unfaithful. I choose to be disobedient. Now that happens a lot, but I don't think... Most of the time, we're having these thoughts consciously. Here's what I think is usually happening. We're delaying and delaying and delaying and asking God, please, another way, another way, another way. Don't make me give that up. I'll just, you know what? I'm going to assume that you wouldn't want me to give that up because that's bonkers. So I'm just going to keep on moving ahead, pursuing the things that please me and bring me comfort and convenience. I'll keep pursuing these things and you're going to have to kill me in order to prove me wrong. I think most of the time that's where we're actually existing, in our disobedience and our unfaithfulness and our lack of devotion and our lack of belief. It's that we just keep on procrastinating and hoping God will change His mind. This holy book in all of its correctness, in all of its beauty, in all of its information about the character and the will of God. It's miraculous. It is filled with God saying, I'm like this. Be like this. I do this. You do this. I am always this way. You live in light of that in this way. You say these things. You do these things. You go to these places. You speak these words. You believe these promises. You persist in these truths. You require of yourself this kind of obedience. You crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. You walk by the Spirit. You believe the Word of God. You trust in those promises. You look always to the cross of Christ for your identity, for your fulfillment, for your purification. You love God, pursue God, enjoy God. You hate sin. You abandon the purposes of the world, the plans of mankind. You Always persistently pursue the things of God and set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is seated. Always live this way. Love these things. Do these things. It's filled with all of it and it's laid in our laps, open for us at all times. And what's our reaction? I don't know. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I should. I don't know how that'll go for me. I don't know if God will actually see me through the way I imagine He might see me through. I don't know if God will give me what I need along the way. You know what the problem is? You don't know God. You don't know God. 
If you think for a moment, for a moment that a God of grace and salvation and mercy, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will command you, do this and I promise I'll do this, and he would abandon his command and his promise to you, if you think for an instant, for a nanosecond, that God will abandon you in your obedience, you don't know God. He's so much better than that. He's so far above and beyond our doubts, our insecurities, our fears. They're nothing to him to overcome. The most dark and insecure and dangerous place you've ever found yourself in is right in the light to God. Even darkness is as light to him. He is not afraid to lead you. This Abraham, this command, this son, this sacrifice, this deliverance, this promise, this oath, this commitment, this covenant, it is very much about you. It is very much about me. It is all about Christ. He has accomplished things that Abraham barely sniffed. And they've been granted to you. To walk in obedience makes the most sense. To lay your life down, to sacrifice, to open your hands towards God. It makes the most sense to close your hands, to avoid God, to be afraid of obedience. It's lunacy. It's lunacy. He has given you everything, everything, and it's all found in the glorious treasure of Christ. I say all this to give you a very simple bit of guidance. You devote yourself to getting to know Christ. And so many of the doubts and insecurities and fears about following him will be eradicated because you will see him in all of his wonder and majesty, perfection, beauty, glory, sufficiency, steadfastness, faithfulness. You'll see him in the way that he really is. And every challenge this life throws at you will seem stupid in comparison. This great encouragement of God's promise and his devotion to you will be magnified and you'll find strength like Abraham found strength to believe God, to believe that even if it requires a miracle, God will do what God has said. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.